If you have a Bible, you can open it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's where we'll be this morning. Last week we started taking a look at, at Scripture, and we'll do that again this morning, and with a little bit of a different question this morning, rather than how do we know that God is there, how do we know uh, God's presence and so on, rather, what are we to believe about the Bible? About the Bible itself, that book that you hold in your hands or on your electronic device or whatever it may be that you have to see your Bible. It is a book still. What do we believe about it? Just what is this book anyway? Uh, and so you young Christians, as you listen to this scripture that I'm going to read, maybe your parents sometimes urge you to read the Bible, to begin reading the Bible yourself and, and thinking about it and, and talking about it with them. And why do they do that? Why do you think that they are interested in you reading this book? You hear some of that here in Paul's words to Timothy. Paul warns Timothy here. This is Paul's last letter uh, that, he, that he writes late in his life. Timothy is in Ephesus, and Paul warns him, saying that in the last days there will be difficulty. People will be lovers of themselves and of their possessions, and people will be proud and arrogant and abusive and heartless and conceited. And some people will have the appearance of godliness, but they'll deny its power. Paul says they will always be learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And then Paul says this, starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray that you would grant to us faith to believe your word, Would you cause us to recognize its power and your work through it in us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we began, as I explained to you, to in kind of reorienting for ministry together as a church to to revisit some of the things that we looked at before the holidays set in. The the purpose of the church itself, to be the the presence of God on earth. And the mission of the church, the, the church as a whole, being to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And now as a particular church ourselves, to begin to take a look again at 
what are the essential things? What are the, the non-negotiable truths that define us as a church? Really, that ought to define the church as a whole, and not just this particular one. But, but what are the non-negotiable things? And I, I told you, we're going to kind of follow this trajectory of Scripture and justification and sanctification and glorification and a number of different other non-negotiable elements among those. But this morning we continue with Scripture. And last week I, I spoke to you about you know, why we gather together here on Sunday mornings. There are a number of reasons why, which are not reasons why we gather together. That we don't come together to be a social club or to be music appreciators together. We don't come together to necessarily hear a, an eloquent speaker or speech or to appreciate a beautiful building. Those are things that might be a part of church to some degree or another, but those are not the reasons why we gather together. Rather, we come together here because God has made himself known. That's what we know as Christians. Now, this past week, the flu entered into my family's house a little bit, and we're about recovered from it. A couple of of the kids came down with the flu, and we called up the pediatrician and spoke to the nurse, Mary did, and, and asked so what do we do? do? Should we come and get a prescription for Tamiflu? Or, or, and, the, and the nurse immediately said, no, don't do that. Tamiflu, in our experience, is just not going to help you. It's going to make you nauseous in your stomach. It might cut the flu short by maybe one day, and it's really expensive. So don't bother with that. So we didn't. And then another friend said, oh, gosh, no, you should take that because it cut my flu down to just two days, and, and it was so easy, and it made it all better. Other doctors say, well, that nurse is wrong. That nurse just doesn't know what she's talking about. It's sort of a reflection on our world's view of truth. It all kind of depends on what your experience is, what is true as you see it. It depends on your experience or your biology even or your culture in which you live. What's true for you may not be true for me, our world wants to say. But is that really the case? Is that really so? Can that be? As Christians, we want to say more than that. As the church, in fact, we must say more than that because in our world of virtual reality, which is sort of the world in which we all are involved or at least affected by, so many live in a a, a virtual world that, of course, is in fact not reality at all. How are we to know what is real? How are we to know what is real? true. What must we believe about the Bible? Paul says to Timothy, first of all, here, the Bible is inspired. I'm going to concentrate in verses 15 and 16 and 17 or so. Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God. The theological term is inspiration. Now, that's not the same as inspiring Okay, so in the congregational survey, one of the questions was, so someone tell, says to you, tell me about your church, what's it all about? And one answer you might give to them is to say, well, our church believes that the Bible is inspired by God. And they might respond kind of out of their own context and say, I'm so glad you think that because the Bible is inspiring to me too. I, I get inspired by the Bible. And, and to that you would want to say, well... 
you know, the Bible is inspiring. There are parts of it that will inspire you in, in many ways. But that's not what we mean. That's not the same thing. What does it mean? It means very simply this. God breathed out the very words of the Bible. It's just like when you and I speak, the term that Paul uses here is theonoustos. God breathed. That's why your Bible says that. It's literally that God's breath is at work here. Now, I realize that for someone who's skeptical of the Bible or of, of Christianity, that begs a pile of questions. And I hope to address some of those here this morning, at least. You know, how can you claim this? How can you claim that this book is God's very breath, his very words from his own mouth? I mean, after all, it's, it's, it consists of 66 books were writ- written over the course of some 2,000 years from various writers, some of whom we don't even know their identity. Do you know that? And how can you say that about this particular book? How do you know? Well, we have to admit there's somewhat of a mystery about this. I mean, we don't really know how God does the things that he does. We can't explain all of it. And the logical answer to what does it mean might be a little bit disappointing to a skeptical person because it's sort of circular reasoning. The Bible attests to itself. It's what we call the self-attestation of Scripture, In a number of places, a lot of different places, the Bible claims to be the Word of God itself. One of those places is in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter helps us on a number of occasions in this regard, and and he writes this. He says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the self-attestation of Scripture. Scripture says that it's Scripture, therefore it's Scripture. Now, anyone who knows logic is going to say, nuh-uh, you can't do that. You can't witness to yourself. Someone else has to be the witness. But the reality is that we're finite creatures. And whether you're a Christian or not, at some point down the line, you have to attest to yourself. Or your authority has to attest to itself. Whatever you believe, if you follow logic down to its reasonable ends, you're not God. Unless you claim to be God, and then you're attesting to yourself. And so we're kind of stuck with this. It was recognized by the early church. Augustine, one of the early great theologians, said it simply. He said, where the Bible speaks, God speaks. So then, is God a control freak? I mean, did did God override the styles and the personalities of men in order to manipulate to get the words that he wanted on the pages? Is that what he did? Because so many different people wrote it, and they had different styles and situations and so forth. How did God do that? It's kind of like, I guess there are different ways you could put it, but I would say it's kind of like a child learning to cook. About a week or so ago, one of our kids made a comment about helping mom bake some cookies in the kitchen, which mom will often invite them. Come and help me to do this. And, and this child made a very astute comment. He said, you know, when, when a, a kid helps to cook in the kitchen, the kid really just kind of pours some flour in the bowl, and, and mom or dad is the one that really kind of does it, right? In other words, when a, a child learns to cook, different children will bring their own sorts of 
personalities to it. And one child might spill flour all over the counter, and mom and dad kind of help to, to shape things up. And, and in the end, what comes out of the oven is according to the direction of the one who's in charge. Another kid might put a little bit too much salt in, and another might leave out an egg or something like that. And in the end, what comes out of the oven might be flavored distinctly by the one involved, and yet it's under the guidance of the one who's in charge. That's much of what it's like for Scripture to be inspired. That still leaves some skeptical questions, though, like what does it include? What does it include? Paul is very clear about that. He says all Scripture is God's breath. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, this begs the question of canonicity, and we just don't have time to even really go into that. Suffice it to say that the canon of Scripture, the 66 books that are there, you can approach them sort of this way, and say the Old Testament is, is pretty easy because Jesus knew all of the Old Testament. It was all in place already when Jesus was quoting from it, and he quoted from all of it, almost every book of the Bible and at the time, which was the Old Testament. And if Jesus accepted and quoted it, then we know it's the Word of God. And Jesus spoke on his own authority, and, and it's not just the Old Testament. Old Testament, it's the New Testament as well. Jesus spoke on his own authority. He didn't just say... Thus says the Lord, like the prophets were prone to do. You know, Isaiah would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus said, rather, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, the prophets never did that. Ezekiel would never say to the people, I say to you this truth. No, Ezekiel would say, here's the word of the Lord to you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you. He spoke on his own authority, which was a claim to deity, by the way, of which there were many on his part. But not only that, he also commissioned his apostles to speak on his authority when he said to them, He who listens to you, listens to me. He commissioned his apostles to speak on his authority. And therefore, Paul could write to the Thessalonians this, You accepted what you heard from us, Thessalonians, not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The Word of God. The apostles recognized that their words were the Word of God as they came to the people and preached the gospel to them, that Jesus had commissioned them to speak His words on behalf of Him. In Second Peter chapter 3, Peter again helps us, writing about Paul's letters to the Christians. Peter says this, he says, "...there are things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand." which some people distort as they do the other scriptures. Do you hear that? Peter's subtle assumption is, you and I, we both know that Paul's letters to you, they are scriptures. And people distort them as they do the other scriptures when they don't understand them. In other words, the apostles knew that their words were God's words. You know, we want something extraordinary. We want for God to speak to us in the clouds or something like that. But what God has done, rather, is give us the ordinary. He's given us literally written pages of His words in a book in our laps. And why is that sometimes hard to accept? It really kind of boils down to this. If God exists, 
as Psalm 19 was clear to show by his general revelation, all can see, no matter who you are or what you believe or what language you speak, all can see that God exists, that God is there making things as they ought to be. If God exists and he wants to be known, then he can and will make sure that we have the right words in the book. The significance of inspiration comes down really to the power that it implies. You can think back to Genesis, the very beginning of Scripture, where we read that, And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a space between the, the waters and the sky. And God said, let there be vegetation. And God said, and God said, and there was. There's great power in the, the simple words of God. One of my very first ministry jobs was as the camp minister at, at a place called Alpine Camp. It's a Christian boys camp in Alabama. And I was the camp minister, and so I got to, to preach a short sermon on Sunday mornings to the camp church, to the kids. But I didn't have experience in preaching at the time. I didn't really know how to go about crafting a sermon or, or really how to, to, to communicate it. And, and I, one time I expressed some frustration about that to one of the other counselors. I said, I don't know what to preach on Sunday to these kids. And, and he said, well, if you have some doubts about that, then just read Scripture out loud. After all, it is God's Word. And that kind of struck me. I thought, wow, I mean, he's right. Now, I think there's more to preaching than simply reading the Bible to you, but, but it is God's word. There's a, a confession that came out of the Reformation that puts it this way. It says it very starkly. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now, that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, but this came right out of the Reformation. This is what the Reformers were doing in in recapturing the power of the Word of God itself. And what they said was, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God, to the extent that it is faithful to Scripture, at least. Martin Luther said it this way. Luther said that the church is God's mouth house. In other words, the church is the house in which God's mouth resides. It is the institution that God has chosen by which to speak His words, through His word, to His people. Now that's sort of contrary to American independent evangelicalism, isn't it? Because you know, we kind of want to think, well, just because you're the preacher doesn't mean that you, you know, I don't have to do everything that you say. And that's not what we're saying by it. But rather, as God's word is expounded in a way that's faithful to the text itself, it is God's very word. John Calvin even said it in a way that that would maybe offend us. And, And we Presbyterians, if we have any doubt about things, we tend to refer to Calvin. And that tends to correct whatever heresy we might be spouting, doesn't it? And Calvin said it this way. He said, God has chosen so to anoint the lips of his servants that when they speak, he speaks. That's John Calvin. Now, this truth has held this church together through transitional difficulties. And I know that it has, as I've talked to to some various ones of you and and asked. I asked one friend 
why are you still here? I mean, why is your family still at New St. Peter's? What's held you here through this time of difficulty? I mean, a pastor leaving and then the, the rock-solid, steady associate pastor declaring that he's headed for Portland, Oregon. And, and now, what's held you here? Why are you still here at this church? And the answer was profound. It was, was really simply, we've not felt that we had any right or reason to leave because the things that we came here for are still here. We didn't come for any particular person or, or program or anything like that. We came because the Word of God is here. Therefore, we're still here. This truth has held this church together. The Word of God is here. What else do we need? Scripture is inspired by God. It's also inerrant. That's another thing that Paul implies here. He doesn't say it, but it's, it's necessary And this is the controversial idea here. This is the the part that's hard for a modern skeptical person to accept, that the Bible is without error as it was given originally by God. Maybe reliability is a better word, that that the Bible is reliable for us and we can trust it. But inerrant is an even stronger word. If it's God's breath, then by virtue of who God is, then it is logical necessity that it is also without error without mistakes, because it reflects his character, as Psalm 19 calls it, perfect, sure, trustworthy, and so on. Words that that we use to describe God himself, we use to describe God's word. Now, by being inerrant, we don't mean the translations. The English translations that we all have, because none of us are, I'm guessing, reading Greek and Hebrew, or or even at that, the, the original manuscripts that were given and written down, but, but the various translations, the ESV that we so commonly use, or the NIV, or the, the New American Standard Bible, or the New Living Translation, or whatever the, the translation is, maybe that you prefer, is not necessarily without error, because people have interpreted the original languages in order to come up with those translations. But the original writings as God gave them to the writer, are without error. But what about mistakes in copying throughout the ages? Because we don't have the original manuscripts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, or certainly not of Genesis and Exodus and so on. We don't have the original manuscripts left over. I think there's an obvious and simple reason for that. Do you know what it is? If God had allowed for those original manuscripts to be preserved and we had them today, do you know what we would do with them? We would worship those things. We would put them on a pedestal and we would have to pay $1,000 each person to come and see them and bow down to them because they were the original things that Paul wrote with his own hands. We don't have those anymore. God have mercy so that we don't fall into more idolatry. But the scribes that we read about in Scripture were faithful to write down what was there. They had practices that were absurd in our, our modern thinking they would actually count the figures and the characters as they wrote down the Hebrew words of the Old Testament. They would count them and mark how many characters were up to this page and to this page and to this page. They were meticulous in their transcribing of the original writings. So so scholars recognize that transmission is not the problem. But there are apparent problems in the, the content of scripture and there are a few categories four categories of those that i want to give you quickly a couple of examples of them one apparent problem is in the category of moral problems 
So, for example, the conquest of Canaan. God sent his people into the promised land, commanding them to kill the people who were there. And and our modern phraseology on that is to say that God sent them in to kill all the innocent people that were there. And that's, that's our assumption of what it was about. Now, that's not actually a problem with the Bible. It's rather a a problem with the character of God himself because who is this God that would send his people in to kill innocent people? But the reality is that reveals our skeptical presuppositions about what innocent actually is, about who owned the land, and about what actually is justice and and the nature of God's authority and so on. It, It begs some of our presupposed ideas about what truth is. So moral problems. Scientific problems would be another category. Scientific. So, for example, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the well-known parable of the mustard seed, and Jesus himself says, the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds on earth. He's wrong about that. Everybody knows, who knows seeds anyway, that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed on earth. It wasn't even the smallest known seed in Jesus' day. And so, is that a mistake? No. He spoke allegorically. He spoke poetically, as it were, to the common experience of his time. And we speak this way, too. It's just a common way of speaking. Or in 1 Kings chapter 7, that some of the, the temple measurements are given as instructions are given for building the temple. And if you scientific engineering type minded number people would want to work this sort of thing out. From what I understand, if you come up from the dimensions of a circle, from the instructions for the temple in 1 Kings chapter 7, you would realize that the mathematical number known as pi would, in these measurements, have to be 3.0. But any good mathematician knows... The pi is 3.14159265359. I had to read that. I don't know that. You know, to suggest that scientific error, we're just simply imposing our technological precision upon the estimates of an ancient culture. That's not how they did things. Another category is historical, historical apparent problems. And uh, one simple example of that, Sir William Ramsey, a hundred years ago, was a, a British Oxford scholar and archaeologist. And he was not a believer. He was not a Christian. In fact, he wanted to disprove the veracity of the history of the Bible, particularly Luke and Acts, which are so heavy on New Testament history. And so Dr. Ramsey set out to disprove that by going to the Middle East to do an archaeological dig in search of certain specifics. And three years later, he was a Christian. Because what he went to look for was the word polytarch, which is a term, a political term, city ruler, used in Acts chapter 17 by Luke. And Luke is the only person who uses the term. And that term, polytarch, was not known in the literature of the ancient times. And and Ramsey knew that. And so he said, Luke is the only one that uses that word. He had to make it up. It doesn't exist in the common language of the day. I'm going to go and prove that it wasn't there. And he found inscriptions of the term polytarch, I think in the teens, 17, 18, 20 of them, only in Thessalonica, only when Luke said it would be there. And there it was. 
And Ramsey later wrote this. He said, I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet, and I found it in Acts. He says, you may press the words of Luke to a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. Critics largely dismiss these first three categories. They just recognize that these, without exception, prove to be no more than apparent problems. And so critics tend to focus their efforts on the inconsistencies that they see in the Bible. So that's the the fourth category, inconsistencies. For example, the thieves on the cross, along with Jesus, two thieves on either side of him. In Matthew 27, we're told that both of the thieves curse Jesus. And in Luke 23, one of the thieves curses Jesus, and the other one does what? He repents. So what are we to make of that? Surely it's not both. Why not? Matthew and Luke record different details for the sake of their own purpose in writing. The reality is both thieves cursed Jesus. They were there on the cross for a little while. And then one of them turned away from his sin. And he repented. That's a simple explanation. Or, for example, the time in Egypt that the Israelites endured their, their, their slavery and, and captivity there. In Genesis 15, God tells uh, his people that they will endure. He tells Abraham, your people, the Israelites, will spend 400 years in Egypt, a captive in Egypt. And then later in Exodus chapter 12, we read that they had spent... 430 years in Egypt. So did God get it wrong when he told Abraham, whoops, it took a little longer than I thought? Or did the writer of Scripture get it wrong? No. It's simply that God generalizes four centuries of captivity. Abraham, your people will be captive for four centuries in Egypt. And they were for 430 years, Exodus tells us. And there are other inconsistencies. But the the truth is this. A Christian's approach is like this. William Bridge, a 17th century Puritan, said it this way. He said, For a godly man it should be as it was with Moses. When a godly man sees the Bible and secular data apparently at odds, he does as Moses did when he saw an Egyptian fighting an Israelite. He kills the Egyptian. He discounts the secular testimony, knowing God's word to be true. But when he sees an apparent inconsistency between two passages of Scripture, he does as Moses did when he found two Israelites quarreling. He reconciles them. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks to this in a sense as well. It says, though we may be persuaded by any number of proofs to believe that Scripture is true, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of its infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. In other words, our acceptance of Scripture as true and inerrant, while involving some scientific sorts of elements, is at root not scientific. It is the Spirit of God bearing witness to us. The fact is, as someone has said, I don't know who said this, but it's a great quote, men don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They reject the Bible because it contradicts them. And that's the truth. The Bible is inerrant. We don't know Jesus because we believe the Bible. 
really, in a sense, we believe the Bible because we know Jesus. The Bible is inerrant. It's also sufficient. It's sufficient. And this one is the one that if, if inerrancy is difficult for a skeptical-minded person, sufficiency is the one that's kind of difficult for Christians. May we just admit that and recognize that. Scripture is sufficient to reveal God. In verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy, you know the sacred writings, you know the Scripture, which is able to make you wise unto salvation. Now, this is different than general revelation. In general revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God. It makes you to know that God is there, that He has ordered His creation. Special revelation is different. It's not just to see that God is there. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a fascinating parable about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man's name is Lazarus. And the rich man lives sumptuously, he tells us, while Lazarus, the poor man, begs for bread at the gate of the rich man's house. Both of these men die, and Lazarus goes to heaven and is with Father Abraham. The rich man goes to hell where he's suffering. And the parable tells how the rich man in hell can see Lazarus with Father Abraham, and he cries out to Abraham, Oh, Abraham, will you please send Lazarus to bring me a drink of water? And and Abraham says, I can't. He can't cross the chasm between us. And the rich man says, Then, Abraham, will you please send Lazarus to my father's house, to my brother's house, so that they will hear from him and avoid the fate that I have found myself in. Will you send him there? And Abraham says something profound to the rich man. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. Let them trust that. And the man says, no, 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 that's not good enough. Send a dead man to tell them, hey, the Bible's true, believe it. And Abraham says, no. If they won't believe the Bible, they won't believe it if a dead man comes and knocks on their door. Now, that seems a little crazy to us. We read that parable and we think, well, that tells us something about heaven and hell. That parable says nothing about heaven and hell. What it tells us is the Word of God is all that you need to know God. What would it take for you to believe Scripture? Would it take an angel showing up at at the foot of your bed in the middle of the night and and, in bright, shining armor and its vast awesomeness saying to you, Hey, believe it, the Bible is true. Then do you think the next morning you'd believe it? No, you wouldn't. You you would say, that was a weird dream. i got to take some medicine or something. That's kind of weird. I'm not sleeping right. You wouldn't. The Bible is all that you need. It reveals God. It also redeems you. What, What does Paul say about it? He says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And for what end? So that, in verse 17, you may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I don't know what your ESV Bible says there. My, my text ESV Bible says competent. My online ESV Bible says complete. I'm not sure that's is that an error in the ESV. I don't know. It actually means both of those things, the, the word that's there. I think complete is a, is a great word because our sense of incompleteness as we are, is so clear in in the pull of the virtual world that is all around us, as I mentioned already. You know, we're so drawn to the sense of a virtual world, we want to encase ourselves in that screen and see 
the world that's in there and explore what's there. It's so fascinating to us because reality is just not enough to us. We feel so incomplete. You are not complete because of your sinful nature and all of its effects. But Scripture is God's instrument to correct this. It's His instrument to sanctify and to redeem you as the Spirit makes use of it. First Peter, again, chapter 1, Peter writes this. He says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. As we know Him through Scripture, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness, he says. It's all that we need. In fact, we confess it every week together after the elder reads Scripture. What does he quote from Deuteronomy 8? Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. John Newton was converted on a slave trading ship. He was the slave trader. He had grown up in a a home with a Christian mother who taught him Scripture from a young age. And so he had Scripture in his head. He had memorized Bible, but it hadn't taken root yet. And, And at one point in one of his adventures on the high seas as a slave trader, Scripture came to mind again. And the Word of God came fresh into his head. It was already there. And for circumstances, I don't know the details of which, it began to sink into his heart And he was born again. He was made alive by the Word of God that was already there in his head. God used it. If not early in his life, he used it later in his life. The Word was still there. What do you believe about the Bible? What do we as a church believe about this book? What are we going to say when someone asks us, what's this church all about? Is this just an old book? Is that all it is? Is it nothing more than ancient literature? No. We must believe and confess together this book is the very breath of God Himself. And so Paul could charge Timothy in the next verse in chapter 4. He said, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, I charge you, Timothy, preach... The Word. It didn't matter if Timothy was timid. Some people suggest that he was. I don't know. I mean, maybe he was. I mean, in comparison to Paul, maybe he was. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if if I'm not a salesman. I'm not. I can't sell a cold bottle of water to a a parched man in the desert. I, I have no sales gifts. It's just not me. It's not who I am. I have no pretense to to think that I am. But that doesn't matter. Because you come here not for any of that sort of thing, not for a sales pitch. You come here because you know that God has made Himself known. And you know that you you come here knowing that God has spoken in His Word. And that's why you come. That's why we gather. That's who we are. And we have to confess that together to recognize this is not just an old book. These are the very words of God. It is inspired by God Himself. And so it's without error, and it's all that you need. May God's Word, His reliable and His sufficient breath, mark this church now and for as long as she may last. To the glory of God, 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would grant that we might see and believe this truth and trust that your word is your word and that by the work of your Spirit, you make us new through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.